I do have a call-in number if you'd like to send me questions or comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a voicemail or a text message. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 408, This Week in Space History for January 20th to the 26th. I'm John Mulnix. If you've listened to me for a while, you've probably come to expect a certain sound from the podcast. After a couple of years, I finally upgraded to a nicer microphone setup. Huge shout out to Marshall at Best Buy for giving me some great information and pointers for the new H6 that I'm using to record. It's going to give me some more expandability. I'm really looking forward to using this uh, later this year with a couple of the interview episodes that I have planned. Now, uh, before we get started with some space history, I want to note that SpaceX successfully launched the in-flight abort test of the Crew Dragon spacecraft yesterday on January 19th, 2020. The in-flight abort test made sure that the capsule is safe for astronauts by proving that the crew could escape a malfunction with a Falcon 9 rocket. Crew Dragon should take astronauts to the International Space Station sometime in Q2 of this year. You've heard we're supersonic, we're through Max-Q. We're getting ready now to throttle the engines back up on the first stage. Stage one, throttle up. There's the call out. Okay, the major activity coming up in just over 10 seconds. Shut down and Dragon escape from the Falcon 9. Miko, Dragon launch escape initiated. Dragon's away. And you can hear some really loud uh, cheering in the room. Okay, you just saw a bright flash there. It looks like that may be Falcon 9 breaking up. We've got some loud cheers um, here in Hawthorne. The, The folks that just watched live the Dragon separate. The next milestone we have coming up at 2 minutes, 25 seconds, um, we're expecting to see the trunk jettison. So that claw that connects the trunk to the capsule is going to separate, allowing Dragon to uh, separate from the trunk. The Falcon 9 booster that launched Crew Dragon's in-flight abort was the Core B1046. This Falcon 9 booster launched a total of four times and landed three. A1046's first launch was in May of 2018. It launched again in August of 2018, and then in December of 2018, before its last launch yesterday. This Falcon 9 core broke up due to the extreme aerodynamic pressures experienced after the Crew Dragon capsule ignited its Super Draco thrusters to simulate a launch escape. Congratulations to SpaceX and NASA on reaching this milestone. We're just a few months away from seeing humans launch from the Cape once again. 
Also tomorrow the 21st, SpaceX is slated to launch the next batch of Starlink satellites. If you catch this episode before January 21st, check out the show notes and the SpaceShot Facebook page for links to the SpaceX webcast. Also, be sure to follow the Space Shot on Facebook or say hi on any of the social media channels I'm active on. I try to respond to all messages, so do drop by. I'd love to hear where people are listening from. As my podcast metrics show, there are listeners in every state here in the United States and in over 80 countries worldwide. I'll catch all of you soon. The company Rocket Lab was scheduled to launch the second flight of its Electron rocket. This one was humorously named, still testing, on January 20th, 2018. The Electron rocket can deliver payloads of up to 225 kilograms, or 496 pounds, into a low Earth orbit. After dealing with some wayward boats that strayed into the launch area, the launch team entered a hold, if you've ever watched a rocket launch, a call for a hold, hold, hold is something you never want to hear, and it signifies either a delay for the launch or a scrub for the day. When preparing to restart the count for the Rocket Lab launch, two of their launch controllers had this humorous exchange. Flight VMS mission cord. Go ahead, VMS. Do you want any hold points? Say again. Do you want any hold points? I did get you. One more time. Do you want any hold points? As in, do you want to hold that T-18 minus or 20? I never want to hold again. Rocket Lab ultimately scrubbed for the day, but they successfully launched their rocket on the 21st. I have got a Rocket Lab t-shirt with the I never want to hold again quote printed on it. It's a great sous vide for a fun webcast. Check out the short video clip from Rocket Lab in the show notes. It's where I got the audio for today's episode. Now we're going to head back to the 60s. Miss Sam, a female rhesus monkey, lifted off on a test flight on January 21st, 1960. This launch was focused on testing the Mercury capsule's launch escape system, a critical part of making sure that the capsule was human rated. One of the benefits of a capsule design like the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and now the Crew Dragon and Starliner spacecraft is that they can abort during different times of the launch. The SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule has the ability to abort at any point of the flight, which gives it an extra margin of safety. I've talked about primates being sent into space before. You can check out episode 14 and 31 if you'd like to know more about some of the other monkey knots that have flown into space. We're going to stay in the 60s for this one. On January 22, 1968, a Saturn 1B rocket carried a lunar module into low Earth orbit as part of the Apollo 5 mission. There were some programming issues with the Lunar Module software, and the first firing of the Lunar Module descent engine lasted only four seconds. Thankfully, ground controllers were able to compensate for this error and continue with the simulated lunar landing sequences, which were performed with the Lunar Module while in Earth orbit. The Lunar Module tested the ascent propulsion system for the first time during this mission as well, which simulated a landing abort something that thankfully never happened during the Apollo program. After successfully test-firing the descent and ascent propulsion systems, the test was deemed a success. Both lunar module stages re-entered the atmosphere after expending all of their fuel. 
after researching the Apollo program for the past couple of years, the one thing that always strikes me and just leaves me in complete awe is the timeline of these flights. The rate of launches and the number of tests that were carried out in such a short time is just absolutely staggering. There were years of development time for the lunar module, but it's incredible that this spacecraft went from the first test flight to landing on the moon in about a year and a half. Somehow, I don't think that could be the case today. I'd love to be proven wrong for Artemis landing in the 2024 time frame. Next up, we're going to head to the 90s with STS-42. On the morning of January 22, 1992, the Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off on an eight-day-long space lab mission with the first female Canadian astronaut. Roberta Bondar and six other astronauts on STS-42 split into red and blue shifts so they could perform experiments around the clock while on orbit. I'm linking to the post-flight video in the show notes. One of the parts about eight minutes into the recap is the speedo-looking goggles that were used as a possible eyewash solution for astronauts in orbit. Laboratories on the ground, science classrooms, and science facilities are often equipped with eyewash stations in case of an emergency. Thankfully, I don't think there's ever been the need to use an emergency eyewash station in orbit. Next up, we head to Mir. On the night of January 22, 1998, the Space Shuttle Endeavour launched on a Shuttle Mir mission. STS-89 was the penultimate mission to the Russian space station. The shuttle flights to the Mir station helped American astronauts gain long-term spaceflight experience before the launch of the International Space Station. These flights also helped with the cooperation between the United States and Russia on joint spaceflight activities. Shuttle missions carried a variety of science experiments in the mid-deck of the shuttle and the space lab module. STS-89 was no exception. One of the experiments that caught my eyes during this flight was the intravehicular radiation environment measurements. This instrument examined radiation inside the shuttle and studied the effects of the South Atlantic anomaly on the spacecraft. The South Atlantic Anomaly is a region of space in low Earth orbit where Earth's Van Allen radiation belts dip closer to the surface of our planet over much of South America and the South Atlantic. The Van Allen belts store energetic particles from the solar wind, and because the belts dip to a lower altitude in the South Atlantic, spacecraft that pass through this region experience an increase in energetic particles. Astronauts that pass through this region report seeing, quote, shooting stars or light flashes. This visual phenomena was also perceived by Apollo astronauts, specifically flashes of lights that astronauts can see even when they close their eyes. These flashes are caused by cosmic rays, so an astronaut's eyes are perceiving cosmic rays, which is pretty wild. I'm linking to an article by Nancy Atkinson on Universe Today that goes into this topic in way more detail. On January 23, 1970, the ITOS, or Improved TIROS operational satellite, was launched along with the OSCAR-5 satellite. TIROS, or the Television Infrared Observation Satellites, were part of a series of early weather satellites launched by the United States in the 1960s. ITOS-1 was a second-generation sun-synchronous meteorological satellite that observed Earth in infrared and visual wavelengths. I've talked about weather satellites before, all the way back in episode 3, believe it or not, and even the last episode, number 407. 
The other satellite that launched on January 23rd, 1970 was the Oscar 5 amateur radio satellite. This small battery-powered spacecraft transmitted, quote, battery conditions, spacecraft temperatures, and horizon sensor responses. Amateur radio operators in over 25 countries made contact with this spacecraft over its short month-and-a-half life. I've talked about Oscar 1 back in episode 212. Oscar 1 was the first amateur satellite launched into space all the way back in 1961. Now we're going to head back to the 80s. Let's step back 34 years to January 24th, 1986. On that day, Voyager 2 made history when it passed by Uranus, the first and so far only time a spacecraft has visited this ice giant. The courses of Voyager 2 and its sister mission, Voyager 1, were made possible because of a unique planetary alignment that occurs once every 175 years. One of the things I've always loved about Uranus is its unique rotation. It appears to spin on its side, since it rotates at about a 90-degree angle from its orbital plane. Studies of Uranus have been difficult because of how far out it is in our solar system. Uranus was the second-to-last planet that Voyager 2 passed on its planetary mission. The Voyager 2 spacecraft passed within about 50,000 miles of the planet as it sped out of our solar system. During this brief six-hour encounter, the spacecraft sent back thousands of pictures and a large amount of data on the planet and its numerous moons. Voyager 2 also imaged Uranus's rings and discovered several new ones. Speaking of the moons, new ones were discovered by the Voyager 2 spacecraft and existing Uranian moons were imaged in greater detail than ever before. The inner moons that were imaged by the spacecraft look to be composed of half-water ice and half-rock, while the outer moons are most likely captured asteroids. Miranda, which is the smallest of the innermost Uranian moons, has giant canyons that are up to 12 times as deep as the Grand Canyon. I'm linking to a NASA webpage that has more detail on these fascinating moons. Be sure to check it out. Now for some more recent history. SpaceX successfully test-fired the Falcon Heavy for the first time on January 24, 2018. 27 Merlin engines roared to life in the successful and brief static test-fire that was performed ahead of Falcon Heavy's first flight with Starman and the Tesla Roadster. If you haven't watched the video of this test or static fire yet, you really need to watch them. I'm linking to the videos in the show notes. They get loud, but this short test and the launch itself are just staggeringly impressive. We're heading back to the 60s again. The Echo 2 satellite launched on January 25th, 1964. The Echo series of satellites were passive communications satellites where signals were bounced off of the surface of the satellite and then returned back to Earth. I talked about Echo 1 in episode 91, and I've got some audio from President Eisenhower in that episode. Next up, Clementine. When you think about a mission to the moon or an asteroid, you probably don't have the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, or part of the Department of Defense, on the top of your mind. However, in the case of Clementine, that's exactly what happened. The Ballistic Missile Defense Organization 
in conjunction with NASA, launched the Clementine mission on January 24, 1994, to study the lunar surface for 73 days. After operating in orbit around the moon, the spacecraft departed lunar orbit to encounter the asteroid 1620 Geographos. Upon arrival at the asteroid, a thruster malfunctioned on board the Clementine spacecraft, causing it to expend its fuel supply, and it placed it into a roughly 80 revolutions per minute spin. The mission ended in June of 1994. Lastly for today, we're going back to the 60s yet again with the launch of Ranger 3. On January 26, 1962, Ranger 3 was launched, and it was supposed to be a lunar impactor mission. Ranger 3 was NASA's first attempt to land, albeit roughly, on Earth's moon. There were numerous issues with the spacecraft, which resulted in Ranger 3 flying by the moon just two days after launch. The early Pioneer and Ranger spacecraft had a significant number of failures. The first Ranger spacecraft to impact the lunar surface was Ranger 7 in 1964. I mentioned Ranger 7 back in episode 75, so you can check out that link in the show notes. That's it for this week. Please share and subscribe to the podcast via your podcast app of choice. I'd love it if you could leave a review or rating as well. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I have a call-in number if you have questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a text message or a voicemail. You can also connect with me via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just check out the links in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.